That was the 61st annual McIntyre Shaheen 100 Club Dinner at the Big Southern New Hampshire University Arena in downtown Manchester. The last time I had been in that arena, it was a very different night. It was Trump's final rally before the GOP primary back in 2016. I roamed the floor as incognito as possible, but the media, who did not have that luxury, were penned in far from the stage and constantly berated by the public and heckled by Trump. It was blood in the nostril madness that night, a very ill night, electric and angry, and just the memory of it brings me now a flood of relief. We're all in Bidenlandia now, grappling of course with the limits of centrism, and there are many, but it's still worth it from the site of Trump's original vicious climb to remember that there are far worse places than the middle of the road. Few people have fought harder for that progressive center than this episode's guest, Gary Hirschberg, who was an early and key supporter of Barack Obama's first primary here. Gary was for Mayor Pete in the 2020 primary, which isn't really the point of this interview, but it does vibe with his biography. As chairman of Stonyfield Farm, he turned organic yogurt, of all things, into a mega business long before that seemed possible and in the process became a legend in the organic food movement. We spoke a couple days before the primary over an early morning spread of probiotic shooters and finished style Oatgurt and other hits for the progressive palate. This is Nathan Thornburg, and from Roads and Kingdoms, you're listening to The Trip, drinking with exceptional people around the world. So speaking of Democrats, you've got a house that's just loaded with them right now. Who's who's upstairs? Uh, uh, well, we it have off? the um, the under thirty year olds who run the Buttigieg uh, finance uh, <laughs> campaign, but we've got media people here and politicos and so forth. The, the The first batch left about two hours ago, so they're they're already out pounding the pavement really the 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 worker bees are, are yeah well they, they now this is the shift that was up till 2 a.m so doing because of course they're operating in multiple time zones you know we're 
we're on the eve of the New Hampshire primary, but that also means we're on the eve of going completely national, right? We, you know, with Super Tuesday around the corner. Yeah, so they need to be both here in in the deep woods, and yeah. uh, and and then also figuring out what's happening in South Carolina and yeah, in California, and it's all compressed this year, right? I mean, in ninety days, ninety uh, percent of the delegates will be chosen. Um, it's a sprint now. Why, Pete? What's Tell me, tell me why it's uh, his guys upstairs and not, uh, and not her guys or someone else's. Well, it, uh, I will, I would kill for any of them. But you know, I'm 65 years old, and uh, I uh, heard Howard Dean recently say, "I'll never again vote for anyone older than me." And I'm kind of in that same camp. Hmm. I mean, this is, um, we're leaving this mess to your kids and mine, and I think. It's time not just for a generational switch in terms of chronological age. It's time for a generational shift in terms of how we do politics. Um, You know, we're excessively partisan. And obviously it's gotten worse with this, uh, you know, guy who's who's, who's really a divider, uh, not a a uniter in the White House. But fair. (laughs) But but uh, but what I mean by that is. I mean, what really impressed me about Pete, to get back to your question, is I went to South Bend. Um, uh, I recognized South Bend because as a child here in New Hampshire, I, you know, I'm a third generation manufacturer here. My grandfather and father ran shoe factories around the state in towns that look a lot like South Bend. Yeah. Uh, Laconia, Newmarket, Pittsfield, Manchester, um, all these mill towns that... In my very youngest years, um, I enjoyed the boom of the sh- of th- thriving and our whole economy did the thriving uh, shoe industry. But by the time I was in my early teens, that industry was in a, a freefall collapse because of cheap labor overseas. And while our family went through suffering, we the business we lost the business. There was you know alcohol and divorce and. Um, lots and of those. This was when you were in your teens and your twenties. Yeah, I was. Uh, no, this uh, the fa- we lost the factory when I was uh, twelve uh, years old. Jesus. So this is like a very defining kind of calamity for yeah. for you. Yeah. Well, it, and it also informed uh, Stonyfield how, how we built Stonyfield, as I'll get to in a moment. But um, but what I, what was even more um, memorable for me was watching the collapse of these communities. I mean, Little Pittsfield, New Hampshire, down the road here had a thriving downtown with a pharmacy. I mean, I used to sit there and read my 12-cent Superman comics while my father was, you know, moving uh, crates of shoes uh, next door. And, um, you know, all those jobs left. The veterinarian went out. The dentist went out. The plumbers went out. I mean, everybody lost their livelihoods. And and so the, 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 the problems we were having in our family were endemic everywhere. And that's just what happened with Studebaker in South Bend. And... When I got to South Bend, uh, it was eerie to see the, it was haunting for me to see exactly what had happened. And it happened that uh, last summer was also the mayoral race for Pete's replacement. So I wandered around and listened and listened to voters, but also got to hear some of the candidates, both Hmm. the one who ultimately won, his successor, um, and, and designee, but also the Republican. And... Uh, I got to witness firsthand what something that I also saw here in New Hampshire, which is that the way that these communities came back after being hollowed out 
was not because of Democrats or Republicans. It was because of civic-minded people. Like I said, back in my childhood, there wasn't that big a difference between the Republicans and Democrats. It's public-private partnerships. It was people reaching, uh, it was entrepreneurial thinking. It was reaching into the community for ideas and then enabling and supporting and, and, and pulling together in a way that Pete authentically did. I mean, I'd heard all this, right, in the yeah. podcast, but I, to see it firsthand. And, and even the Republican candidate running was honoring and acknowledging Pete's success with doing that. And so that's where I talk about a generational shift, is that we, we need to get back to those, uh, the days when politics wasn't about dividing, it was about um, uniting, it was about competing with who had the best ideas. And, you know, Pete really symbolizes that for me. You had um, talked about uh, Tom Steyer being a friend of yours. I was thinking, I, I think he had a good night last night. We're, to date this, we're recording it after Friday, uh, I guess the last uh, big Democratic debate before the primary. Um, and he, I saw somewhere on Twitter, somebody said, you know, I'm still all for eating the rich. I'm just going to eat Tom last, <laughs> you know, as in, you well, know, he's still got the Bloomberg course ahead. We do have a serious out of control problem here. I mean, we're not having elections. We're having sales, right? It's, it's, it's whoever has the most wins. And if you, and money is not just the nectar, it's the blood that runs the whole body. And um, it's one of my big concerns this time around with the number of candidates is that we're splitting up the pot. And I think we need to now, you know, here in New Hampshire, while some folks are just starting to tune into this election, we, you know, we've been at it for a full year. Mm -hmm. And um, it's time to narrow the field because uh, until there is real campaign finance reform, which there needs to be, until there is real public financing of campaigns, which there needs to be, um, we uh, cannot uh, be in this thing with one hand tied behind our back. We've got to uh, concentrate dollars. I am not troubled by Bloomberg at all, in contrast to some of the answers last night on the stage. Mm -hmm. um, as a matter of fact, I think he's a national hero. Now, he's not my choice for president, um, but uh, you know, his, the incumbent raised $25 million yesterday, yesterday on wow. Friday. One day, uh, the incumbent has over seven hundred million dollars. Mammon, um, Mammon has chosen its candidate. Huh? Yeah, I mean <laughs> it's it's you know uh, uh, this is uh, should come as no surprise since that's what his um, his administration is all about. I mean, I, you know, I spent a lot of time at the USDA and the EPA, and it's just lobbyists. I mean, it's not former lobbyists. It's not the the science scientists have been locked away. I have scientists, friends there, who are fearful about speaking truth. Um, so we have a problem here, big problem. But right now, we have to put those solutions to that problem aside because we got to win. Yeah. Uh, as I said, um, you know, I the main reason that I label, I chaired the uh, camp, national campaign to label GMOs is not because I'm necessarily opposed to GMOs, although I have a lot of questions. It's because most genetically engineered um, organisms have been developed to uh, make crops um, herbicide resistant, uh, resistant to car probably, if not definitely, carcinogenic herbicides. Um, at this moment right now, during uh, the growing season, 
uh, 90, the U.S. Geological Survey says 90 to 100 percent of the rainfall in farm states, it, it contains one of three probably carcinogenic herbicides because there's so much herbicide-tolerant crops out there, genetically engineered to be herbicide-tolerant, that um, these crops are enabling much, requiring much greater use of these chemicals. So whatever canary in the coal mine uh, role they might have served before. Yeah. Now. Over. Yeah. Over. And um, so, uh, you know, we you can find this stuff in the cord blood of infants at birth now. And that can't be good. And so um, yesterday, no, I'm sorry, two days ago, the EPA declared glyphosate, one of which you and I would know as Roundup, one of the three most pernicious and pervasive and the most used agrochemical in history, declared it not carcinogenic. Good Lord. Even though the European Union has declared it to be a probable carcinogen and the World Health Organization yeah. has declared it to I be... I mean, you say even though, but it's probably exactly because. Exactly because. And, <laughs> right. and, and this is just symbolic of... I mean, there's no science going on here. It's, it's just, uh, you know, a sort of a, a, a business plan. Uh, so, or if I could put it more bluntly, it's a corporate coup. So, uh, yes, you're right. I do believe in conscious capitalism, and I do believe that money is not necessarily the source of all evil if used properly. In Stonyfield, you know, I started to say earlier, uh, my childhood growing up and watching uh, this devastating effect that a failed industry had on our communities uh, really informed my own evolution. I, in fact, after the businesses went under to business, I thought business was the worst thing on earth. I went off to college to study uh, ecology and climate change. This is er the early 70s. I, ne I, I, I had no intention of going into business. I thought it was just the source of all evil. Um, but through a series of events, uh, particularly I, I wound up running an ecological research institute, and when Ronald Reagan came in and slashed funding at the USDA for anything to do with organic and anything at, at the US at the Department of Energy to do with renewable energy. We were suddenly out of money. Um, my part I was the trustee of a little organic farming school where my partner made this absolutely incredible yogurt he would with his one cow he would serve to our board members. And I realized, son of a gun, um, we're gonna need to come up with our own means of self support because federal money's gone. And so we started to sell the yogurt to uh, fund you know our 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 dreams here so this is you had graduated with a degree in environmental sciences right. and had gone and gone into sort of educating on environment that's right and this is literally the stuff you would drink or eat at board meetings yeah well i eat samuel's our brilliant um, genius uh, founder the the real creator of the recipe had this cream on top yogurt that was like ambrosia and when you ran out of it, you sort of cried. I mean, it was absolutely amazing, exquisite stuff from our own one Jersey cow. And eventually, he got up. We got it up to seven cows, and then nineteen cows. But I'm getting ahead of myself. The the point is, we, you know, the very mission of the company was to be a model that business and commerce could advance the good, could be climate conscious and responsible, could be could avoid the unnecessary use of toxins, could promote animal welfare and farmer welfare and consumer health. It was, it was all mission. 
how I mean, did you have a moment of kind of gut churn for yourself where you're like, oh crap, like I'm I'm gonna be just like my father and grandfather, like I'm I'm here on this board and I'm looking and seeing a product that I can sell. Um, I had a, a moment uh, like you described that lasted about nine years, <laughs> because that's how long it took till we were profitable. You know, we we started this company. You you, have, you got a picture in 1983. There was no no one was eating yogurt and there was no organic out there. So. I always say we had a wonderful company, just no supply and no demand. And uh, so everything was uphill. And plus, Samuel was a brilliant scientist, farmer. Um, and I was, I was pretty good at fundraising, but I'd been running nonprofits. So we were kind of clueless about business and commerce. And we were also broke. We had no money. Um, and so uh, we spent nine years of making every mistake in the book and struggling uphill against these huge headwinds until we finally uh, got to about 10 million in sales and, and, and got profitable. But, but, but the link here I want to make is that because I had seen um, the damage that done when business was um, in conflict with community, we built a community-minded objective into everything we did. So we were all about the farmers. You know, most businesses see their supply chain as their kind of adversary, right? You, you know, you keep the, try to keep the cost down. You're trying to keep a boot on the neck and, <laughs> and they're trying to get away. Right. Yeah. And in our case, uh, we recognized, you know, when I was a child growing up here, there were 4,000 dairy farmers in New Hampshire. When we started Stonyfield, there were 400. And by the way, there's now 87. That, um, that process had already started in the in the early eighties. Oh yeah, or or or, or even before. Um, you know, d dairy family farms up here have been basically an endangered species for decades, due in part to federal policy, but also due to, um, I think, a lack of awareness on consumers' parts. You know, we drive around, we see these beautiful fields, and we just think it's always been this way. But really, that's a reflection of market conditions of. You know our support when you buy, when you when you run an item past a scanner at a supermarket or a food co-op, you're voting for yeah. either that environment or not. You're voting for toxins or not for, you know, safe climate practices or water practices or not. So we memorialized all that into our, you know, the DNA of the business. And you know, today of course I'm really proud. We've we we support over a million acres of chemical free farmland. We support. Uh, thousands of dairy farmers, uh, well, farmers, period, because there's a lot of fruit purchased also. Um, our average herd size at Stonyfield, average, is 66 cows. Get out. Which, you know, you can't, I mean, that bucks all conventional wisdom. You, you, you can't, I mean, in Turkey, the average herd size is 0.8 cows, right? Everybody has one cow. But in the U.S., um, the conventional wisdom, because of conventional agriculture, is you can't, survive on less than four or five hundred cows uh we we are able our farmers by by having less cows uh well first of all we do that they can do that because we pay them a higher price right that's what the consumers that's the partnership with the consumer but second what you what it does is it allows them to put more care and labor and energy into the the proper care of those cows and the farmland but it also allows them to get other sources of income because they've got time. They're not milking 400 cows, so they can do maple syrup or they can do raspberries or something diversified. And, and that was really 
you know, uh, a hypothesis when we started Stonyfield back in the 80s, but now it's, it, it's proven as, as we've grown to now around 400 million in annual sales, so too the organic industry went from, you know, essentially a rounding error, yeah. non-existent, to now it's $60 billion in sales. And uh, it's it's a it's a not just a U.S. phenomenon; it's a global phenomenon. So it's, you know, I think I think I'm making my way back to your question about money, which is to say, you know, Tom, as an example, you know, he made his money the the the, the traditional way, yeah. right? Uh, oil and coal, and but he he had an epiphany. You know, he came to realize after he'd sort of hit his billion that uh, this wasn't really such a good deal for his kids. And he, he, he'd be the first to tell you, he went through his own learning curve. And he and Kat, who are both dear friends of mine, uh, have now turned around, as you see with Bloomberg, and said, wow, we need to use this fuel to fuel uh, a counter-revolution uh, and, and move things, not backwards, but move things ahead in a very different way where we're being accountable for the impacts of our, our, our business. And that's exactly what Stonyfield has proven that in, and I wrote a whole book about this as you know yeah. which, which is it's actually more profitable to be mission driven in part because almost every climate investment we've made at Stonyfield over the decades has actually had a great ROI a great return but also the the most um, obvious and important uh, benefit has been you you build loyalty with your consumer people want especially millennials want to support companies that they care about all the data shows that they will pay more. They will be more loyal to companies that are uh, promoting a mission that they believe in. So when Bernie gets up there and starts railing against, you know, the billionaires, he's he's right in part. But but as with all things Bernie or all things political, it's not a black or white thing here. We mm-hmm. we're going to need resources to invest in turnaround technologies quickly. If the IPCC, the Inter- Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, is right. We have about 10 years uh, to get ourselves um, straightened out here. We're going to need serious investment. This is a drinking podcast, <laughs> among other things. And you've given me now five drinks here. Um, why Oatgurt? <laughs> Let's start with that. It's Halsa, a Finnish Oatgurt. Well, um, if you look at the category <clears throat> out there, I'm st- now talking specifically about the yogurt category, you'll see that there's a whole new... Um, niche that is now around six or seven percent and growing very fast, and that's the plant-based niche. And there's a lot of reasons that people choose plant-based. As you know, there's more vegans and vegetarians than yeah. ever before. But there's concerns about animal welfare. There's concerns about climate. Um, and uh, like with organic, uh, writ large, uh, the plant-based products have now risen to the opportunity. They're they're really good tasting, and this this halsa. Oatgurt that you're holding is in our refrigerator because it's the best tasting. It's really good. It's mango pear, uh, no, totally methane free, uh, <laughs> right? <laughs> so well, I don't know if they put that on the label or not, but <laughs> but right, but it's it's all it's, it's certainly a vegan, and you can see the number of ingredients, right? Yeah. It's it's uh, it's no sugar added. It's clean product. It's uh, uh, no additives and 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 so forth. So. And by the way, oats can be grown in most northern climates. Um, so we, uh, you remember that when I described the motivation for starting Stonyfield was to save our region's family farmers. Yeah. Um, 
every one of our dairy farmers here in the Northeast can grow oats. Interesting. So that's one of the other reasons I'm interested. This happens to be a, a, a Finnish couple. They, they, they do, they're here in the U.S. So it, it, truth and transparency, I'm, I'm an investor and a board member now in Halsa. Uh, oh, yeah. No, this, but, is all, this is all Gary or Stonyfield projects. Yeah, you, but uh, I, I also, in, your, in, your gla- in your, the glass in your hand is yep. Forager. Uh, that's cashew coconut milk. Uh-huh. Uh, I was until recently on their board also. And it's, again, coming out of the same space. What, what I would specifically point out about both of these is they're both organic. Yeah. There are a lot of plant-based alternatives, but if you are really serious about health, then you have to, you know, you have to choose organic. When we first started buying, you know, we, 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 we produced our own, um, we had our own cows. But when we had to start, when we exceeded the capacity of our farm, we had to start, go out and find farmers who would use these crazy organic methods back then. We couldn't find any. And we finally found one in, in Chelsea, Vermont, a guy named Peter Flint, Peter and Bunny Flint. And uh, so we would send our little truck all the way up there. You know, uh, I think the round trip was uh, 230 miles. And so that meant that every one of those miles had to be spread over the, 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 you know, the, the, the 200 gallons or 300 gallons or 1,000 gallons we were picking up. Eventually, Peter and Bunny were starting to show their neighbors that it was really working. So we started to get two farms and three farms and four. And now the cost of that tr- truck yeah. could be spread over more tonnage. And that's how you bring the cost down. You don't, you don't screw the farmer in the process. You just find efficiencies. And with greater and greater volume, you can bring it down. Now, it's never going to be cheap. You know, but I want to quickly say that cheap food is not cheap. And actually, it's often not food. I mean, this is like cheap healthcare, right? It's like right. It's I like, mean, you're paying for it some. You may not be paying there. for it at the checkout counter, but you're paying for it somewhere. Yeah. Whether in our health or the environment, or you know, again, some poor farmer getting stiffed. Um, yeah. So you know, there's a conscious purchase here, and admittedly, those who can afford it are the ones who are going to make it possible for those who can't. Having said that, the one of the fastest growing. Uh, uh, sellers of organic food nowadays is Walmart and Target and Costco. So it's getting affordable. And now you have the big C store chains. And, you know, in those days, back when we started, you didn't have any of those customers. But, um, you know, and, 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 and by the way, Stonyfield was the first organic company to ever sell to Walmart. And I took a lot of grief for that, yeah. a lot of heat. Because, you know, Walmart kills downtowns and it's, all that uh, stuff. This is a classic Buttigieg moment for you. <laughs> right. It's true. I mean. But, but, I, but I stood by the decision and stand by it today because I, you know, I say to people, look, we never set out to be food for the elite. And there's one hell of a lot of Americans who can only afford to buy their food at a Walmart or, you know, a similar big box store. And uh, we need to be there. And, and I, of course, also knew that the more volume they purchased, the easier it would be for me to hold costs under control. Um, so, you know, we've done a good job of, of keeping price within a range, but we're still, depending on the product, you know, anywhere from 5 to 15% more expensive than conventional products. Which is already way, way closer, a way smaller delta than, than there had been. Oh, yeah. And, um, you know, you got to understand my gross margins, you know, the, the, the margin that's left after my cost of goods, I'm, I'm 1,000 basis points. I'm 10 points worse than, you know, those big uh, conventional guys uh, out right out of the back of the dock. So, and yet my net margins are comparable to them. And and the reason that, that I'm able to do, do that is essentially I don't spend money on advertising. And, 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 and 
and the reason I can do that is we build loyalty. Because customers know. Right. It's, and, on, it's on your lids, the message, you know. Yeah, yeah, and it's word of mouth. It, you know, the, 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 the primary benefit of, 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 of uh, having loyalty is that you get word of mouth, and, and, and that's, the high, that's the greatest purchase influence there is on people. Um, all right, well, I have to say, in a very, very frothy and sort of um, high-octane political moment to come and, and uh, get so many, so many lessons on optimistic... <laughs> Kind of politicking and, and retailing is uh, unexpected. Thank you so much, Gary. It's, it, it's a total real, pleasure. Been a real pleasure. Thank you for coming. The trip from Roads and Kingdoms is hosted by me, Nathan Thornburg. Alexa Van Sickle is our producer. Theme music by Dan the Automator. Episode illustration by Daisy D. Sound mastering and composing by Ricardo Gutierrez. Show artwork by Adele Rodriguez. Executive producers are me and Matt Goulding, also of Roads and Kingdoms. Next week, it's Ava Castillo, activist, immigrant, New Hampshireite. We will meet you there. <laughs>